Hello everyone, this is Richa Mishra with the latest episode of Energonomics. India wants to be seen as global refinery hub, but is it logical to hold such aspirations? How does a country heavily dependent on imports for its crude oil supply do this? What will be the implications given that climate change and green energy are gaining grounds? Here is my detailed conversation with author and president of Transversal Consulting, Ellen R. Wald. Welcome to Energonomics Podcast, Ellen. Getting straight to the point, do you think India is on the right track when it aspires to be global refinery hub? I don't think it's such a bad idea. In fact, um, you know, China has uh, done, you know, done something similar in in its own way. But I think that there's um, absolutely room for more. And um, you do have to look at some of the kind of um, considerations uh, that go along with this. So, um, you know, what what exactly would India need to do to uh, become kind of a, a global or at least a, a regional um, hub for refined petroleum products. And what you really need is investment and customers. So you need money and capital to put in to build new refineries, to import crude oil, and then you need customers to sell the products to. Um, and what's interesting is, is India, like China, doesn't really have um, domestic sources of crude oil. Um, but one, but there are there are other, you know, um, advantages though that India has. And right now, um, you know, crude prices are not all that high. Uh, we're not talking about, you know, like in kind of the um, early 2000s when we were seeing prices that were very, very high relatively, you know, prices are, are relatively low uh, on crude oil right now. Um, and so uh, you just need the capital to build the refineries and pay for, for the crude oil. So um, China has definitely had investment and customers. So China really, they have big state-owned refineries, and then they have these independent refineries. Some people call them teapots. I, I prefer to use the term independent, small independent refiners. Um, but um, one of the things that India has that China doesn't have is uh, a more, a freer economy. And, and, you know, they're not necessarily a state-run economy. So the Chinese refineries depend on the central government to basically issue them an allotment of crude oil that they are allowed to import. And they do this twice a year. Um, so they're kind of in a way managed. Um, but, uh, you know, India has the advantage of um, having a, a more capitalist economy me. And so um, independent refineries would not necessarily be dependent on a centralized government telling them, okay, you're only allowed, you're, you're allowed to import, you know, this much crude oil per half a year. Um, and so that I think makes, uh, makes the potential um, for these refineries to, it, it may, it, it, they have a greater potential for, uh, you know, for, to make money, which could potentially make it a good investment. Um, so you've got that. So then, then think about the customer base. So um, China, China sells a lot of the products that, you know, the, the products that are made in these refineries get sold all over um, the Pacific region. It's kind of uh, got customers right there. It's kind of the end of the line in the Pacific. Um, they sell to their Asian neighbors. Okay, so so who might India's customers be for this? Well, um, you've got Pakistan, you've got Bangladesh, and I know that that um, diplomatic relations haven't always been so great um, between India and those countries. But one of the things that at least that that I believe and I've found uh, to be the case is that energy relations often um, uh, kind of 
um, go beyond the lines uh, of diplomatic engagement. So a good example of this is that um, for many years, um, the northern Iraqi government, the, the Kurdish sand regional government, would um, sell oil. They would ship it out of northern Iraq to a port in Turkey, and then it would be sent to Israel. Turkey and Israel were not exactly getting along at the time, but Turkey was thrilled to have this port be kind of the central hub for uh, Northern Iraq's oil and to send it to Israel. Because when it comes to energy and making money, that seems to really be the, the primary uh, the primary motivator here as opposed to, to any kind of like diplomatic relations. So, um, you know, if, if there's a will to go beyond say, traditional hostilities and make money selling oil and oil products. I mean, these these are, are countries that need oil products. And if India has them, has them right nearby and is offering a good price, then there really shouldn't be any barriers to, um, to this. Then there's also Africa. And traditionally, India has had great trade relations with, um, with parts of Africa. And Africa is definitely an area that we are expecting to see a major demand growth in terms of the need for petroleum products. So uh, I think India could really capitalize on these um, traditional trade relations and move into the petroleum products sphere. There's there's absolutely a, a market there. And then you have the really big one, which I think is something that, um, you know, that, that's definitely getting more uh, press now. And that's the fact that Europe has stopped buying Russian crude oil and Russian petroleum products. So, um, and, and in fact, um, Russia has now opened an entirely new market for its crude oil in India. Um, and what India can do and, and has started doing, but could do this even on a, a larger scale is imp import Russian crude oil, refine it into petroleum products, and then sell those petroleum products to Europe. Uh, because Europe won't buy petroleum products that are um, made by Russia, but they will buy petroleum products made from Russian crude oil as long as they're made by some other country like Turkey or Indonesia or India. And so um, there's definitely a big opportunity there. In fact, there was just uh, an article that came out today um, talking about how um, India has been importing so much um, Russian Urals crude. So there are different blends of crude oil. They've been importing so much of the Russian Urals blend that there are um, a bunch of tankers of a different blend of oil that are just sitting there um, and haven't been haven't been unloaded. And so um, I do think that if you know if India is interested in and planning to pursue becoming a, a regional global refining hub, uh, it would be beneficial to build refineries that can handle various different types of crude. One of the problems in the U.S. is that all of the vast majority of the refineries are set up to handle heavy sour crude, which was the primary type of crude that they were importing when they were built. Um, but the United States is actually producing a lot of very light crude oil now, and the refineries aren't set to use that, uh, to optimally use that. And so, um, you know, one of the things that India could do is make sure that it has that it builds if it's going to be building new refineries that they um can be set to you know that they can process a lot of different types of crude because you know right now there might be a lot of a certain kind but that could that could shift in the future and that would definitely make it a more dynamic hub so so there's that and then i also think that india has the benefit of having a lot of ports it has a good coastline you know in the u.s most of the refining is actually done right on the gulf coast because that's a very good 
port, um, but there are a variety of really good ports and, and situations in the coastline of India so that, that make it um, definitely um, very amenable to, uh, to this. Very interesting points which you made, but uh, before I come back to you with a couple of supplementary questions, which what you said, mm -hmm. my uh, other question to you was that, you know, by doing this, the refiners here are saying that you're creating a kind of a balance. They're saying it's a trade balance. Now we are heavily import dependent on fossil fuel. Now, and the uh, food price, you know, you can't trust. I mean, no one bets on oil price, maybe 80 today, tomorrow, we don't know. And uh, right now, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. The U.S. is also playing a big role because elections knocking at the door. So everyone wants to have a, a say at, you know, uh, what is the oil price which will be comfortable. India is also going to elections. So at the retail end, we are also looking at an oil price, you know, which could be, uh, it doesn't hurt the vote bank. So let me put it like that. So I, what I want to understand from you is when India says or Indian refiners says it kind of creates a trade balance of import and export. What exactly are they referring to? What, what, what is, uh, I mean, how do one see this argument? Yeah, so when talking about trade balance, um, you know, I think the United States has faced a lot of similar issues, um, became very much import dependent, like there were, you know, in the U.S., they say, like, we don't manufacture much of anything here anymore. We import it all from, from elsewhere. And, you know, unless you have some kind of natural resource that you're exporting or you're manufacturing something else that you're exporting, uh, you can end up with a trade imbalance where you're importing a lot more than you're exporting. And that is, in general, a sign of uh, a troubling economic sign. Now, you know, you could combat that and say, well, you know, in the kind of knowledge and information economy or service-based economy, or a consumer-based economy that, um, you know, this is just a sign of like a, a, a more mature economy that you're importing more than you're, you're exporting. Um, but I do think that it can be a, a troubling economic issue. Now, I think what the refiners are talking about is that you say India already imports a lot of stuff. They're not necessarily exporting a lot, but um, if you're going to build refineries, because India doesn't actually produce the crude oil, they're going to have to be importing that crude oil from somewhere, and then they're but then they're going to be producing petroleum products and exporting it, uh, because the the idea is they're going to make more oil, they're going to make more gas, more petroleum products than they need, so they're going to export it, and so it's um you know I think they're they're saying it's a good way to kind of deal with this this trade imbalance, and I think the answer is yes. That is a good argument, but like you said, um, for example, India's demand for petroleum products, domestic demand, is expected to skyrocket. You know, I, I think that that you know most people can agree that um, with the way the Indian economy is developing, demand for petroleum products is going to increase, and um, it's you know can be less expensive to consume pro those products that are. Um, that are manufactured or that are that are made at home. Uh, so you do have to you, you kind of run the risk that they're going to build these refineries, they're going to start this, and they're going to need to uh, sell them domestically, and then they're not going to be making as much money uh, as they would if they were selling them uh, abroad. So um, so you have to take that into account and make sure that say. Um, because the the margins on refining are not always so great. Like you also mentioned, it a lot depends on the price of oil. So um, these, you know, and, and you can see it, you look at the, the margins with these independent Chinese refineries, when oil prices went up, their margins collapsed. 
And so uh, you have to take that into account that, yeah, you could come up with this idea and you could put all the, the investment in and the capital in when prices are low, but then if prices you know, jump for any reason. And like you said, it's really impossible to predict the price of oil. Uh, a lot of people thought that it was going to be a lot higher in 2023 than it ended up being. Uh, likewise, in 2022, nobody expected that Russia was going to invade Ukraine and suddenly prices were going to skyrocket for, for some time. So there's always the unexpected and it really is impossible to accurately forecast where the price of oil is going. So, you know, you could end up building all this stuff, and then suddenly the margins are gone because prices are higher. Chances are prices will go back down because one thing that we do seem to know about the oil market is that uh, it operates in cycles. Yes. And there's a really excellent book uh, about this called Crude Volatility by um, uh, a colleague and, and friend of mine called Bob McNally. Yeah, yeah he, he does a really great job explaining yeah. where the volatility comes from and, and how these cycles work. So, um, you know, even if it doesn't hit at the right time, if you hang on, you're pretty sure that prices will end up going down. So uh, I think that's an issue. Truth is, that doesn't mean that it's the wrong uh, business to get it. And I do think that because of this Russian, these sanctions against Russia, and these sanctions don't seem like they're going to go away. I, I mean, I really do not see Germany, you know, changing its stance on Russian crude oil for a while. Uh, I mean, so uh, just, it really doesn't seem like they're about to reverse course here. Yeah. So just to interject there, because, so uh, you know, uh, as we just spoke, that uh, they may not be getting the Russian oil, but they are getting the refined products from India. So, yeah. you know, it, no, no way, you know, is uh, affecting anyone. And if if uh, I'll be a devil's advocate here, then India by default has played a role in keeping the oil price stable because the Russian oil was being sourced by India and uh, it uh, it more or less kept the market uh, stable. Otherwise, imagine how the prices would have mm -hmm. gone. Absolutely, such a huge producer. Absolutely. And that was actually, I think, one of the goals that they were trying. That was actually one of their goals with the sanctions, because they said, we'll put all these sanctions in place, but but the price of oil is not going to go up. Don't don't worry. I think that was their they were they were totally fine. OK, with with, you know, importing products made out of Russian crude oil for some reason, as long as their money doesn't directly go to Putin. Yes, they're okay with it, even yeah. though bizarrely enough, the goal seems to be, oh, we want to hurt Putin's source of money so he can't fight this war. And yet they're perfectly happy with Putin, you know, making money selling the oil to India. So it's it's all a little bit complicated, honestly, but that that was definitely a goal. So, um, you know, everyone's very happy to buy for India to basically um, <clears throat> for India to take this oil, to buy this oil and refine it and then sell the products to to. Europe. Yeah, so that the Russian oil is in the orbit, but not out of orbit. It's very much part of the you know solar system and exists uh, very much there um uh, before uh, i mean uh, uh, before i ask uh, i had another specific questions in this time when we're talking about energy transition and most of the refineries in the west or the uh, countries in the west are not going 
are big oil companies. Let, let me put it like that also. Mm -hmm. you know, large players are not investing in greenfield refineries because of the climate commitments that everyone is ha having. Do you think it's a right time or posture for India to do it? Because there is a challenge. Yes, there is a challenge, but um, everyone still needs oil products. Uh, the fact is that electric vehicles are not, they, they're not going to replace the traditional combustion engine. They're just not, they don't offer the same reliability. They, it, there are a lot of issues with them. So we are still going to need oil and petroleum and, and gasoline and diesel for transportation and jet fuel. And even more, we're going to need the kinds of the fuel that fuels uh, ship, ship transportation because there is so much global trade going on. So um, I don't see that um, this is really going to impact demand for petroleum and petroleum products. Uh, I know that a lot of people argue that, you know, more and more adoption of EVs is going to lead to lower uh, to lower gasoline demand. Um, I think that in some European countries that may be true, but um, it's not going to be the majority of them, and that gasoline demand is going to grow in other places like Africa um, and, and other parts of the world, because these places are not going to want to pay for electric vehicles, first of all. Um, and they're, they're not, they're, they just don't offer the reliability right now that um, someone who is still, you know, someone who's getting their first vehicle is not going to opt for an EV because for the amount of money it is, it's not going to provide the kind of reliability that an internal combustion vehicle can, combined with the fact that electricity is not always a constant in developing areas. Uh, you know, you can't always depend on the fact that you'll be able to charge your car at night uh, when you need to, uh, whereas you will be able to get gasoline. So uh, I, I think that believing that gasoline demand is going to drop simply because people say that they are committed to green whatever is is really short-sighted and that um, the places and the companies and the countries that are positioning themselves to take advantage of the fact that we are still going to need gasoline and that that demand, they're, they're betting that that demand will increase and that the West is not building any more refineries because, um, you know, like you mentioned, these uh, green technologies, these green policies, but also the, there are a lot of regulations, especially in the United States, that make it very difficult to build a new refinery. And so even though you know, the demand is still there and the demand is increasing. It's so hard to get one actually built that we're going to end up importing those products from elsewhere. Um, and so if you're in the position to take advantage of that, I think that there definitely is uh, potential for growth in that area. And if that's if if that's what India wants wants to do, I, I, I'd say there definitely is uh, an, a potential there, um, you know, if you're going to if you're going to take that that tack. Now, if you want to take the tack that the world needs to burn fewer hydrocarbons, uh, we shouldn't be doing this. And therefore, we're just not going to build this. Um, I, I definitely see that and I see places taking that attitude. But the fact is that somebody else will do it. 
somebody else will yeah, seize this opportunity. Yeah. And so, you know, if India can say, hey, we're going to do it up to the best standards, we're going to put in place the best environmental, uh, you know, safeguards um, for our refineries, then, um, you know, wouldn't it be better to to have the you know, to, to have this then for it to be in a different country from a different producer that isn't adhering to these kind of safeguards. Interestingly, now we don't see too many standalone refineries coming. Most of them are petrochemical plants or petrochemical units. Yeah. So, you know, that also adds a value to it. But you made two very interesting points, and I quickly want to catch up on those points. Mm -hmm. One was that you said coastal refineries, because what makes sense yeah. is refineries at coast. In India, yes. we have very many number of refineries who are landlocked on, on land. Yes. So uh, any fresh investment which has to go in the refinery sector, it should be preferably coast. I mean, we have one of the finest and most uh, technology-driven refinery of Reliance, which is in the coast. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have uh, one which now is Russians also have a stake in, mm -hmm. and, and that's also there in the coast. But uh, my point is that it, for the greenfield refinery, now banks are also having their own norms for investments. Where do you get money from? FIIs and banks may not be willing to invest. That's a huge problem, honestly. I think that's a huge problem. And, um, you know, if, you know, if these banks aren't willing to invest, there will be others. They just might be Chinese banks or, um, you know, less savory Russian banks, for example, will invest, or it will be a Saudi, it will be a Ramco that will finance it. And they're going to have a stake in that refinery. And they're going to send Saudi crude to India for this. And so, you know, honestly, I think that it's this kind of decision by these large global financial institutions to not finance these kinds of projects is very short-sighted because um, what it does is it basically send, it, it basically delineates the, the world into different kind of um, financial spheres. You have the banks and the financial institutions that will go in on these projects. Um, and then you have the ones that won't. And the ones that will will, will be, you know, they, they won't adhere to the best standards. They're, you know, they may be doing crooked things in other countries. I mean, look at Venezuela's got refineries finance, you know, that are half owned by Rosneft now. Um, it's almost like a separate kind of financial sphere there that they've got going on. And, um, you know, I do think that, that India is at a juncture here where it wants to do business with everyone. It would love to get these, you know, loans and, and financing from big, you know, Western financial institutions. But if it can't, it has the ability to go to these other institutions. And I think that the, the issue here is really more with the Western financial institutions, because not only are they missing out on these opportunities, but they're missing out on the connections that come from being involved in these kinds of projects um, and 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 the, the and the financial standards that they can bring to this, and so I would I would honestly say that this is a problem of the banks because these are projects that will get financed, um, but if they're not financed by you know the the Western ones, they're going to get financed by others. And and India, in in my mind at least, India would be smart to, you know, go to these big ones first because uh, you know it's better. But if they're saying no simply because they're not, you know, they've made some commitment to not finance other re refineries, then um, that's not the end of the project. There are a lot of other institutions out there, um, you know, that will want to do this. 
And, you know, that's, <laughs> that's really the fault of, of the financial institutions that are that are making this decision. Uh, honestly, I, I, I'd say like, they're, they're the ones missing out. I'm not trying to justify, but say that uh, India is being smart. And it's using its uh, disadvantage, that is of less oil, it's not an oil producer, mm-hmm. to, it's turning, to an advantage. It's selling the process. process Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is, and, and you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, you know, they're they're seeing an, an, a, a hole in the market and they're filling, they're going to, to fill it. And um, because I think the truth is that, as I've said, that demand for these products is not going away. If anything, it's going to grow. It may not be growing the same way that it's grown in the past. It may not be growth from the same sources as in the past, but it's going to grow. And so, um, you know, there. If, if India wants to take advantage of this, then the opportunity is there. And um, I think a lot of these financial institutions don't realize that just because they're saying no, that's not going to stop the project. <laughs> and um, it, it's just... They're not really doing anything good for the climate by not engaging with these things. By engaging with them, they might be able to um, help them get done in more environmentally friendly ways. But, um, you know, so so I just think like there's definitely the capital for this. Um, it's just a matter of, of where it's going to come from. So one last question then before I uh, let you go, because, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as as they say, the greed of an oil reporter mm-hmm. is never over. Well, <laughs> once an oil reporter, you are always like, when we were chatting, there also came a conversation on geopolitics and diplomacy yes. we we're talking about. And this is one sector where diplomacy plays a very important role. You know, the commerce and diplomacy goes hand in hand as to how you're working towards it. I mean, like, for for example, we just spoke about Saudi and Saudi Arabia may like to sell oil to us, but Saudi always charges an Asian premium to us. Mm-hmm. We're still fighting over it. U.S. is one of, one of the top five crude oil suppliers to us today. I mean, U.S. has tapped our market uh, for, you know, uh, flooding mm-hmm. it with oil. Russia doesn't want to let, uh, let go of us because of a sheer size, the demand and the market mm-hmm. which we offer them. Uh, do you think there should be a, uh, I mean, uh, the, the kind when we talk about balancing act, how, how do you create a balance between diplomacy and commerce? So that's a, a great question. I it's actually one that I kind of studied uh, for my uh, dissertation when I was doing my my PhD in in business history, and uh, I looked at how oil companies in the Middle East used their um, relationship with the uh, State Department, you know, and the, and the ambassadors that were in those countries, um, and how they kind of worked together. Both the, the State Department used these companies to leverage their own, you know, dipl- diplomatic concerns, but the companies used them to help have better relations, um, you know, in the country. So um, I think that that if they um, decide that these um, concerns can be addressed by working together. So, for example, I'll just give you the, the the issue that that I was concerned with was in the early 1950s. The State Department was very concerned about um, fighting another war uh, potentially against Russia. Um, they were also getting started in the Korean War, and they needed to be able to have fuel 
for um, you know the Air Force and the troops that were in Asia, uh, and also potentially what if there was a breakout of another war with Russia somewhere else. And so they thought it was very, very important to have access to oil in Saudi Arabia because they could easily get it to Asia much easier than if they were taking it from the United States. And um, there was an American company um, Aramco was an American company and they wanted to produce Saudi oil, but they were having a lot of trouble um, dealing with the Saudi monarchy because it was a very different culture. They had a lot of trouble dealing with them and, and negotiating with them. And so they relied on the ambassador and their office to do a lot of that interface and smooth things out when they got angry because together they could both achieve their their aims um and and everyone could could do better so i think that um you know when it comes to diplomacy that um and when it comes to these relations that government uh diplomats can play an important role in facilitating business relationships um in other you know between say india and and other countries because um if they think that, and and also these business relationships can lead to better diplomatic relationships down down the road because even if the two countries don't agree or they have a lot of historic animosity um if they are doing business with each other and they have the same business goals that can um in a way kind of smooth over some of maybe the other antipathies and lead them to to be able to unite to um you know to further this shared business goal so i think that there there's absolutely a role and it absolutely can be done um Sometimes things go really badly, um, like in um, Iran in the, the 1950s, the British government was not helpful in uh, helping the oil company maintain its relations in Iran, and they really screwed things up and um, basically blew the whole thing to, to you know, smithereens there. So, so it can go badly, but it can also go really well. And uh, so I do think there is a very important role for um, government and for um, diplomats to play. Uh, and I do think there's a very important role for businesses to play uh, in also furthering uh, you know, the, the national security goals of the state. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you so much for sparing this time with us. It's been a pleasure.